Man, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Thanksgiving week, that kind of feels crazy to me. This is my first experience of ever being in a place in the country where the weather does not change, and yet you're supposed to force yourself into a holiday spirit here. I'm used to it being fireplaces and cold and bowls of chili and all that. So I had carne asada all week long and uh, wore shorts and uh, have been trying to tell myself it is Thanksgiving season. Um, but uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. I hope, I hope you have awesome things prepared this week. I am looking forward to uh, next Sunday, and, and it's a tradition around here, and I, I've never experienced it before, and so I'm excited to experience it. So we will be in here for just one service, as Fred was telling us. We'll have uh, a big table down the center of the room. We'll, we'll gather in a big circle around the room, uh, and we'll hear from, from you guys. I won't preach at all, and so we'll hear from you as you tell us. Did somebody clap when I said I won't preach at all? I'll do that. <laughs> um, so you guys will be telling all people around as we will have microphones available what you're thankful for in 2018. It's just a chance as a family. I love that. That's actually a tradition that in my family we do at Thanksgiving. And so before we, we have our big prayer of Thanksgiving as a family, we'll talk about our year and we'll hear from our, our folks that are from all around the country of what God has done in their, in their life. And so we could do that as a big church family next Sunday. And I'm excited about that. And then we will, we will end our feast series by taking part of the great feast of the Lord's Supper and communion together next, next week. And so I'm so looking forward to worship next week. I hope you mark that on your calendar in a wonderful way to bring it in to the, to the Thanksgiving season. I'm looking forward to, uh, I, I'm, I'm about to get on a plane this evening and, and my family and I are flying to Texas and we're going to my mom's house and we're going to be there all week long, get to do Thanksgiving with my mom. But can I, can I tell you something? As much as I get excited as a chubby man about the food on Thanksgiving Day. I am, you didn't have to laugh that hard at that. I don't know who that was. I, as much as I'm excited about that, I'm not flying across the country for the food. I'm flying across the country for the people, right? And it's the people around the table rather than the food on the table that make it a feast, right? I don't know if you caught it in this, in this prophecy that we've, we've listened to at the beginning of every one of these series, Isaiah 25, where Isaiah is prophesying about the day when, when God removes the shroud of death and, and all people will be gathered together and we'll have this feast in heaven. I don't know if you caught it, but the word all is in there three times. He says that he will do this for all people. He says that twice. And then he says that he will remove tears from all faces. I love that. He doesn't say just the people that look like you. He doesn't say just the, the faces that look like your face. He says all faces. So I want you to picture what the dinner table of heaven will look like on that day. When we look down as far as we can see on either end, and there are faces from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every socioeconomic class, every political persuasion you can come up with, every different type of language. Throughout time, we will see the most diverse dinner table ever assembled in heaven. And we'll look across the table at this face that is so different than ours, and we will see family. Because we will all be related there in the blood of Jesus Christ. And it turns out that the feast of heaven, as we feast on the love of God, 
as we are so excited to be there to be shared, will be a feast. Not just because of what God is preparing for us on that table, but the way that he has prepared for everyone to be around that table. And I look forward to that. I look forward to that. But you know what's interesting? Jesus prayed this famous prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. You know it. And he, he teaches something very interesting theologically. Repeat after me. Just thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So I want you to just pause there and hear the theology of what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, God, as it will be in heaven when you make everything right, bring that here on earth right now which says that we don't have to wait for the dinner table of heaven to experience the diverse, beautiful family of God. We can do that right here and right now. And in actuality, what the church is meant to be from the very beginning is a little appetizer, a glimpse into what will become when God makes everything right. And the church, if any place that ought to be the most inclusive, most diverse place in all of the world, ought to be church on a Sunday morning in our living rooms as we gather for our growth groups. That is to be a picture of the, of the kingdom to come. Because that's what the kingdom is going to be like. And God prays, hey, thy kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to answer that prayer. We get to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. But this morning, we're going to read as we continue on in this feast series where Jesus, we find him again at a dinner table in the New Testament. And we realize, and we're just going to confess together that while that is a beautiful picture, sometimes we fall short of making room at the table of our hearts and in the table of our churches and in the table of our living rooms. We sometimes often struggle with making room for all people in that moment. And we're just going to be confessing of that. And we're going to see that play out in a dinner with Jesus and a group of Pharisees. And we're going to see what Jesus then has to teach us and what this story has to teach us about making room at the dinner table for all people and all faces. So let's, uh, let's read together, if you would, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. There's too many verses to put them all up on screen, so you have to actually open this thing called a Bible in front of you. It's pretty neat. Uh, Luke chapter 7. Uh, we should have, a, if you don't have a Bible, seriously, there are, there are Bibles there available in front of you in the chairs. If you'll grab one of those, I'd love for you to follow along. It's a, a, a neat story. I'm going to read verse 36 through verse 50, and then we'll say a prayer, and we'll have a little Bible study this morning and seek to learn from the, from the Word of God together. Luke writes, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the, forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that through your spirit, you take us back to that moment when you gathered at the dinner table, when judgment was rich and your grace was richer. God, take us there and transform us as we learn from you this morning and from your words and what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, we find Jesus sitting at a Pharisee's dinner table. I just love that. Jesus is not afraid to go in. And so he, he goes in to eat dinner there, and a, a woman comes in. I don't know, how, did any of you grow up in a small town? Uh, yeah. If you, you right away can relate to this woman if you grew up in a small town. I grew up in a town of 7,000 people. When I was in eighth grade, my dad, it came out that my dad had had several affairs. There wasn't a person in the entire town that didn't know that story. When you live in a small town, there's a lot of good things that come along with it. There's a lot of bad that come along with it, too. Everybody knows your business, right? And so everybody that I saw in town would say, I'm sorry, Shelton. I'm sorry for what's happening. I don't even know you. Why are you, <laughs> why are you in my business? I don't know. It's my fa but that's, am I right? Life in a small town. Everybody knows. And so here's this woman. And her reputation is obvious to everybody there. And there's a lot of speculation about what, what her reputation is. It could be that she was a prostitute, which before you're quick to judge in that day and age, a woman uh, could not get a job. And so if she had no son and no husband to provide for her, no man in her life, her options to get food on her table were extremely limited. And so oftentimes they turned to the one thing they had that they could sell. And so the guilt, they don't want to be there. That wasn't a choice that would be in their life would be immense, would be immense. Earlier in this same chapter, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. And that sounds awesome from the standpoint of, yay, she gets her son back. And she is excited for that. But there's more to that story. She's also excited because it means that she will also have somebody to provide for her. She was a widow. There's power when there's a male in your life in that culture that was so demeaning towards women. And so it could be that she was a prostitute. It could be that she had had an affair on her husband or multiple affairs. And in that small town, everybody knew it. It could be that she had an addiction and everybody knew it. Whatever it is, her reputation was that she was a sinner. 
And so Jesus is at dinner, and she walks in, and she has a jar of perfume. Now, there's so much cultural things going on here that, that this story can seem weird to us. So hit pause on our 21st century understanding of what dinner looks like, and let's jump back into the first century. First of all, they didn't have a dinner table with chairs. Their table would have been down on the ground, and they would have pillows all around the dinner table. And so to sit at the dinner table, you would recline down. The text tells us that Jesus, they were reclining at the table. Typically, you would lean on your left arm so that you could use your right arm to eat. And so you get the picture. They would have their dirty feet facing away from the table, their bodies facing in as they're leaning in on their left arm, and they're eating. Now, in that culture as well, it's not like you can run down to CVS and get some deodorant, right? And showers weren't a regular thing. They smelled bad. They smelled bad. And they walked nearly everywhere on dirt, dirt uh, roads with sandals on their feet. Their feet were filthy. So you get the picture. So how they would overcome that a lot of times were with strong-smelling perfumes or oils to wash a lot of that away. But perfume was awfully expensive. Olive oil was a little bit cheaper, so olive oil could, be, could wash away some of that dirt and get rid of some of it. But this woman, who probably didn't have much, has been saving up to get this jar of perfume. And, and to her, it probably represented a ton of savings that she had, one of her most valuable possessions that she could possibly afford. And she hears that Jesus is at dinner. So she comes in, and her plan would be what you would normally do with perfume would be to anoint his head. That would have been, uh, that would have been seen as, as culturally okay that, to put oil or perfume on his head to cover up some of his smell. It would have been a gift for Jesus. Yes, Jesus probably smelled. He was human, all right? It's not like he just got rid of that out his. Uh, um, so she's coming in to, to bless Jesus with this. But she gets there. And as she gets up to the table, she can't quite get to him because his feet are leaning out. And she looks down at his feet, and they're filthy because the host had not provided any water, which would have been the kind thing to do for him to wash his feet. And so she's standing there, and she's weeping about the moment. And she looks down, and it says that her tears were dropping down onto his feet. And if you could just picture dirty feet with little drops of water hitting them, and you see that those dirty water beads beginning to running down, and she sees it. So in this extreme act of humility, she doesn't have anything to dry up this with. She's embarrassed that she's wet Jesus' feet. So she gets down with her hair and begins to use her tears and her hair to clean Jesus's feet. And she probably smelled him while she was down there. And so she took the perfume and she poured out the most expensive thing she had on Jesus's feet. And she began kissing them. We could preach a sermon on that scene right there. But I want to take us to what happens next. That at that moment, at that moment, Simon, the host, the Pharisee, begins thinking to himself, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know who it is that's cleaning his feet. No self-respecting rabbi would let somebody so unclean touch their feet because it would make them unclean and they wouldn't be able to go into the temple to worship. So this, this guy claims to be a rabbi. Never mind that he had just healed people and, and brought back a widow's son from the dead. Never mind any of that. If he was really a prophet, he would not let this woman, the sinner, touch his feet. 
I love that, that Scripture says he's saying that to himself. So it's not like he voiced that. It's not like he leaned over and Jesus heard that. So then Jesus let Simon know, oh, I'm a prophet, and I know everything you just thought to yourself. Turns out if you invite Jesus, the creator of all the dinner, and you're thinking you're having some private judgmental thoughts, they're not so private, right? And so Jesus says, Simon, I've got something to tell you, buddy. And Simon, ignorant as could be, what's that? Rabbi, what you got? And Jesus proceeds to just stomp all over his toes, right? And he tells this parable, this metaphor, if you would, of two people forgiven a debt, and the one that was forgiven greater would, would love more. And then Jesus begins to press in. And he says, listen, from the moment I came in here, you didn't give me anything to wash my feet. You didn't give me a, a brotherly kiss, which would have been in their culture, which you do to a guest to make them feel welcome. You didn't give me perfume to cover up the stink that I have in my body. You didn't do anything for me. From the moment I walked in, this woman, this woman has washed my feet with her tears. She hasn't stopped kissing me. She's anointed me with, with perfume. And then he tells her her sins are forgiven. And I, I just want to pause. Because in this interaction between what Jesus has to say to Simon and what Simon is thinking, I think there in this, in this place of conviction from the words of Christ to the judgmental heart of Simon, there is where we would find ourselves. And it's there that I want Scripture to convict us as well, to let Jesus begin speaking to our heart. And what Jesus convicts Simon of is that Simon needs to learn how to make space at his table. Not just his physical table, but the table in his heart. Simon needs to learn how to make space at his table for two types of people that currently aren't welcome there. Because Simon makes two judgmental calls in that moment. The first is he's judging Jesus. Right? He's judging that Jesus isn't, isn't a prophet, isn't who he says he is. And secondly, he's judging the woman who's there to worship Jesus. And it turns out he was wrong to judge on both fronts. And what Jesus begins pressing in on him about is that, Simon, you need to learn how to make room at the table for both me and the guests that I bring with me. So let's step into this quickly. That, first of all, for us, if we're going to let this convict us, we have to learn how to really make space for Jesus at the table of our hearts. That Simon had invited Jesus, he's near Jesus, they're physically all near Jesus. But what Jesus says is there's only one person in this room that has had the appropriate response to me being here. And it's none of you, he says to the Pharisees, it's this woman that you are judging. She's the only one in the entire room that has had the appropriate response to the Son of God being in your presence. She's the only one that hasn't stopped worshiping me, that's pouring that out. So let's, let's chat real quick. Well, I, when I was a, a, a college student, I had a group of friends, my roommates and some other guys that we'd go out and play a game that we call campus golf. It's where you take a six iron and you take a tennis ball. And we had an 18-hole course that we played around our college campus. Every, every hole had a specific tee spot. And then you, every hole had a specific thing that you're aiming for. It might be a specific tree, a statue of Judge Baylor, or whatever these things are. The bear's den. There's like a live bear. You hit their cage. That was one of the holes. Um, they didn't mind. Um, and... One of the holes was you had to hit the wall 
of the office, the exterior wall of the office of the president of the university. So one of my roommates is this big, goofy guy that's like living with Chris Farley. If you know who Chris Farley is, it was hilarious. He's great. He sets up about 20 yards away to hit a wall. He's got this entire wall that he could hit. If he hits anywhere on that wall with this tennis ball, that's the end of the hole. He swings his six iron. He goes back, goes through it. He hits the president's window square right in it, it, it could be which that was kind of a common occurrence for us. It was okay until we saw the president open up the window. And the president of our university leans his head out and says, you stay right there. And we're all looking like, ooh, you're in trouble. <laughs> we're all pointing to him like it was, it was him. We're scared to death of what's about to happen. We're thinking the president's going to come down on us. Instead, his name was Dr. Sloan. He came out with his six iron, and he said, can I play the rest of the course with you guys? He said, absolutely. That was the coolest round of golf I'd ever played after that, right? And it was unlike playing with these other college knuckleheads. We had a guy that was actually really good at golf, and he was the president of our university. We behaved totally different than we normally do when we were playing around a campus golf. It was different. We had the president with us. Francis Chan tells this, this scenario in his book, Forgotten God, that I've always loved. He said, whenever he reads the story of Moses having a conversation with God on the mountaintop, he gets a little jealous. And he thinks to himself, man, what would it have been like to have a face-to-face -face conversation with God? Wouldn't that have been cool? And he says, I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to run up to Moses and I'm going to say, man, what was that like, Moses, to have a face-to-face -face conversation with God? And he says, and what I've come to realize is Moses is going to look back to me and ask the question as a Christian, what was it like to have the spirit of the living God living inside of you every day? You, you realize that's the New Testament theology. Moses had to run to a mountaintop to meet with God. New Testament theology is that Jesus has descended the mountaintop and he's come down to the valley of his people. And all those that would believe in him, he says, I will come and make our home with you. Listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. If you'll pull that up for me. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The Son of God saying, here's the invitation. I've prepared a feast for you in heaven. I've prepared the way. If you say yes to me, you don't have to wait till then to have me. I will come in to the feast of your heart right now. And we will come and make our home with you. Which says that I don't just believe in a God that's out there that's made a way for me. I believe that God resides right here inside of me now. And that changes everything. But I think if we're honest as Christians, we don't fully understand what that means, right? And so I think we would do well to learn how to make space for Jesus in our everyday life. And I give you three quick things from this text I think we can learn to do to make space for Jesus. First, recognize him. Recognize that he's there. I think, I just want you to say this out loud. You have the Son of God living inside of your soul. Just picture that out loud. I have the Son of God living inside of my soul. That's awesome. Hey, will you come second service do that again? You, you totally got that. That's great. She totally will. Well, she talks. I love it. That's exactly right. 
You're the son of God living inside. And I know it sounds weird. If you're not a believer, you're like, these people are weird. They're talking about they have son of God living inside of them. Yeah. And you go, no, no, that's just the voice in your head talking to you. No, it's not. I know the voice in my head. It does not say good things. Right? But there's this other voice that is calling me to repentance. And it's calling me to love. And it's calling me to kindness when I want to have judgmentalism. There's this different voice in there that wasn't there before I was a believer. There's this different voice that when I open up Scripture, He is there and it convicts me and it speaks to me. So I I would say there should not, Christian, be a day of your life that goes by without recognizing who is with you living that day. One of the greatest promises is, behold, I am with you always. Always. He's called Emmanuel. We're about to worship that at Christmas. That means God with us. (laughs) That's our gift. He's with us. I think worship ought to be a part of every day of your life, just a natural flow of your day. It's recognizing who it is that's with you. That I, I don't just have anybody hanging out with me in here. I mean, there might be some weirdos in here too. But there's also Jesus. And he's the Son of God. So first of all, recognize him. Second of all, come, not just come with recognition. Come with expectation. Expect to hear from him. Jesus didn't sign up to come into your life to be a silent partner. <laughs> he wants to be upfront and president of it all. I had this great conversation with my 10-year-old last night as he was going to bed. And we were talking about what prayer time looks like. And he says, Daddy, do you hear from God? And I love that question. I said, yes, every day. He looked at me like I'm weird. I'm not weird. That was the whole point of him coming to live inside of us is that we would hear his voice. Jesus says, you know my, my sheep hear my voice and they know my voice. Right? And so you come with expectations that I expect to hear from you today, God. I expect to hear from you. That's why I open up scripture. That's why I worship. I expect for you to show up, God. You have every right to speak down into my life, which points to the third thing, that not only should you come with recognition, come with expectation, come ready to change. Because you can't invite Jesus into the conversation of your head without him pointing out some things that don't need to be in the conversation of your head, right? Because the base part of our theology is that I am broken, I am messed up. And so to to be a follower of Jesus is not to expect Jesus to adhere to my points of view. (laughs) It's for me to lay down my points of view and say, Jesus, teach me how to have your points of view. And that's a different ballgame. Anne Lamont says, you can be certain that you've created God in your own image when he hates everybody you hate. Hmm. Hmm. That's powerful stuff, right? So when you make room for Jesus, you're making room for the Son of God to be there. The great irony of this is that here's Simon having dinner with the Son of God, and he's judging in his head, ah, he's not really the Son of God. He's not really the prophet. He doesn't say any of that out loud. And Jesus, like, jumps into his head and goes, yes, I am. (laughs) Can you imagine his shock after that conversation of going, that guy just heard everything I said? Yeah. And if we would recognize who is with us and come expecting, asking him to change, you would feel the presence of God inside of you. Make space for God. Make space for Christ in your life, at your table. He's answering. He's knocking at the door if we would answer. But here's the flip side of that. If you invite Jesus into dinner, 
be prepared. He's not coming alone. He brings guests like the woman. And oftentimes, those guests are not the ones that you were expecting to show up. Right? In fact, Jesus teaches that one of the greatest measurements of love for him is our love for the least of those around us. Do you, do you remember Matthew 25, the, the parable of the, the goats and sheep? He says, the king will reply on that day, judgment day, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Do you hear that? Whatever you did for one of the, the least, Jesus is bringing his family when he comes into your life. And his family is not guaranteed to be the most convenient people in your life. In fact, it's probably going to cause you to have to sacrifice quite a bit to have them in your life. And if we're honest, it would be just nicer of Jesus if he would bring healthy, like self-efficient, self, uh, people that don't need much, that look like me, same socioeconomic class, that think exactly like me. That would be a lot easier, God, if, if my family were just all on the same board with me. Can you just bring those people in my life? Jesus didn't show up with another Pharisee that day. He showed up with a sinner. He showed up with the person with the reputation. And Simon showed he had no room in his heart for her to be there at all. Can you imagine the courage she had to walk into that house? Put yourself in those shoes. She knew she's a sinner. She knew they knew she's a sinner. She didn't care. She's going to meet with Jesus that day. She had some business to do. And with all their judgmental thoughts and all their judgmental looks, she had to worship Jesus. How different would that scenario have been if when she walked in, they all stood up? So I'm so glad you're here. I bet you came to see Jesus, didn't you? Let me show you where he is. He's right over here. Can you imagine how different of an entire different story that would be? If the woman didn't have to overcome the judgments of those gathered around the table of Jesus to meet with Jesus, church, if that doesn't convict you, I don't know what will. Because if we're honest, if we're honest, there are always people that when they walk into a church, they feel like they have to overcome the judgments of that church in order to meet with the Jesus of that church. Are we... Are we being honest here? And I know that hurts. It hurts me too. It's true though, right? It's true. It's true. Oh, what the kingdom of heaven will look like. And I'm convinced we're going to be shocked when we look around the table going, you're there? Really? No. And they're going to say, yeah. I asked Jesus to cover my sins too. It turns out that's the only prerequisite to eat at the dinner table of Jesus. Oh, that that would be the only prerequisite to eat at the dinner table of our hearts as well. That we would make space for people. That we would welcome people. If, if you're visiting today or maybe you've been around for a while, I'm new here too, I'm glad you're here. Um, I love that we have name tags. I've never been at a church that had name tags before. My first Sunday here, I was like hiding. I was, nobody knew I was here. 
I was, I was here interviewing, and we had like church on the lawn, and I had this name tag on. I was kind of hiding around over there. I was supposed to be an incognito, and then I walked in, and they're like, hey, what's your name? And they put it, I'm like, you're not supposed to know my name. Stop that. And I was hiding. And I thought my first judgment was, that's weird. Why do they have name tags on? And the more I sat and watched, the more I go, I like that we have name tags on. Because you know what it says? And I want you to hear this. It says, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And I get that we've probably met five times already and you should know my name, but can we just be gracious with one another? We all have bad memories, right? (laughs) And I can remember parts of your story that you've told me, and I struggle to remember your name. So there's just a graciousness that says, hey, I'm Shelton, right? And I don't want to be a nameless face around here. I get that I'm a preacher, so let's use somebody else, right? Tom? Hey, I'm Tom. Two Toms? I'm Tom and Tom. (laughs) Can I tell you something? This is not meant to be a place you attend, but a people you belong to. That's church. And church feasting in this room is not meant to just be something we watch and participate in by singing, but something that we share together with the family of God. And church, anybody that walks into this room that you don't know, You ought to be jumping up to run and say, welcome to the feast. I'm glad you are here. Because you never know the enemy's attempt to use the awkwardness of being new at a place to make somebody feel like they are shamed and shouldn't be there. And oh, what a welcoming face can do to say, I'm glad you are here. Can we be a people that makes space at the dinner table for anyone and everyone? that wants to be there. I'm going to end, and this is kind of the the image that I have of heaven. I'm going to end with a movie scene. Each of these sermons, I've quoted a movie. We started with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, if you remember, a couple weeks ago. Last week, I quoted the movie Hook. I'm going to show you a scene from a movie. If you're a Navy guy in the room or a Navy gal in this room, it's a Navy movie called Antoine Fisher. I cry every time. I'm a big, but you're going to lose your, your view of me. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a crier. <laughs> I cry easily. This scene gets me every time. If you have kids, don't watch this movie with kids. It's a real life, gut-wrenching movie. Antoine Fisher is an, is an orphan. He grew up in the foster system. He doesn't know his parents. He doesn't know why he was abandoned. He was sexually abused in the, in the foster system. Got into the Navy, has all sorts of anger issues because of what he's endured. Denzel Washington plays a a psychologist that helps try to map the course for him a little bit. Denzel invites him into his own home to have some dinner. There's still all sorts of anger issues going on with him. Antoine Fisher, as this orphan begins to date a girl, she's obviously a good girl, but he's so jacked up inside that he's got issues with her. And there's this final scene. This final scene where he finds out that his father's family has been searching for him his whole life. And he gets invited to the Thanksgiving dinner. And he shows up not knowing what to expect. And I want you to just watch this scene of this child that has had no family being welcomed into the family he was always meant to have. And I want it to close as I think this is what heaven is going to look like because it's young to old welcoming him there. 
that regardless of his history and his past and his mistakes, he's welcome there. But I also think this ought to be what church looks like as well, that everybody is welcomed. So let's watch this scene. When it closes, I'll say a prayer over us and we'll worship together. Hey, what are you doing? I'm your Uncle Hart. Get out the way, Horace. Come on, baby. Oh, look at you. Look at you. I'm your cousin, Jeanette. Oh, come on. And I'm your Aunt Anna. How you doing? Oh, my God. Jesus. Oh, this is my wife's tea. How you doing? Good looking. My cousin Eddie. My dad named me after your father. This is my brother Ray. What's up, dog? What's cracking, man? Hey, y'all, I'm your cousin Jason, man. What's up? What's up? All right, boys, open up. Oh, oh, I'm crying now. I knew it was coming. Oh, that every hurting and lonely soul would find a family. They would say welcome when they come to church. And it would be a foretaste of the welcome they'll have when all of us as hungry, orphaned souls find a home in heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father. Oh. We look forward to the day when we hear you grab us by the face and say welcome. And we who were far away from the Father's heart are brought in. We look forward to that day when we feast, as Isaiah says, at the dinner table of heaven. And there are no more tears, and there's no more hurt, and there's no more shame, and there's no more mistakes, and there's no more death, and there's no more pain. God, you just wipe it all away. We look forward to that day. 
But on this day, we gather in this building as your family here on earth. And we pray, God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That we might love like you love and welcome like you welcome. Help us to make space at our tables for whoever you bring with you. We love you, God. We love you. We are honored to be called your children. Thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.